If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here, Scott Thompson. There you go. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, what is going on in the world? Well, you know, nothing really you want to talk about. Uh, two Jewish schools uh, shot up in Montreal. Is this what it has come to? Is this what it has come to? And the prime minister says uh, in his angry voice this time, uh, no place for any of this stuff in Canada. It's unacceptable. And yeah, do we have a clip of that? Let's hear it. We are seeing an increase in threats of violence, in violence, in hatred. That's not who we are as Canadians. Right now, while this conflict and crisis rages in the Middle East, Canadians have an opportunity and therefore a responsibility to look to be there for each other. Not to necessarily agree. Our diversity includes diversity of perspectives and opinions. But not to hate. There you have it, another angry scolding in the sandbox, kids. Uh, don't be throwing sand. So, yeah, I don't know what that is. Uh, it's up to you. Um, I'll leave it at that. Also, that Concordia, the violent protest rally, I guess, that sort of turned into a protest, what have you. Anyway, it went sideways. It took like three hours to gain control of that with police and security, so says CTV News. On that note, uh, the White House says that uh, uh, new four-hour daily pauses will happen four hours a day uh the shelling will pause in northern gaza to allow citizens a way out uh that's word coming out from the white house this afternoon so obviously that's good news uh what else we got locally uh obviously the hsr uh still out on strike we'll monitor that and give you updates uh, but at this point nothing really to report uh and mcmaster building a new residence wow that's amazing what the heck took so long uh, I guess, you know, uh, if, you, if you got Westdale there, you don't need residents. Uh, have we learned anything from this? Uh, why did it take so long for Mac to finally keep up and at least give its first-year students uh, a chance to go somewhere? Anyway, good news, good news all around, and uh, at least it's getting done. But again, hopefully we can learn from all of this mess moving forward and uh, and not just play uh, political games. All right, it's it's a banger of a show, and we hope you uh, hang around for it. Coming up uh, locally, again, the Utterway Cheese Company is winning uh, cutting the cheese and making us all proud. Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, uh, I don't know if you've heard about this, but the Hollywood actor strike is over. <clears throat> no, I said the Hollywood actor strike is over. <laughs> See? After watching way too much TV during the pandemic, we've had a break. Has anybody really noticed? Uh, Bill Brio is going to be joining us, TV critic, and um, and talk about what happens and how long it does to get this uh, machine fired back up again. Again, Canadian productions have still been continuing on, uh, but um, yeah, that's where we are with the actor strike. Looks like things are, have uh, moved forward and been resolved. Also, and this is a neat indicator. Well, not a neat indicator. It's an early indicator. I don't know if there's anything neat about it. But Christmas being around the corner, 
Uh, obviously, Canadians are going to be cautious about spending, considering of where we are and where we're coming from. But also, what we're starting to notice, and I've seen figures as high as 30 percent, um, you know, lots of seasonal stores, retail and lots of kids that come home from university, whatever college. And they, you know, looking for a few bucks to make over the Christmas holidays. Um, employers are cutting back they because they don't see the demand. So therefore, aren't sure they're going to need the employees. So not only are people pulling back on the spending, but it also looks like uh, the hiring as well. Around this time last November, we talked with Tor Kruger of the Utter Way Cheese Company. you got to like that. They're out of Paris. Uh, following wins at the World Cheese Awards, now Tor returns to the show to discuss the wins at the Royal Winter Fair, uh, but also this year's multi-medal performance at the 2023 World Cheese Awards. To talk more, uh, Tor Kruger with us, owner of Utter Way Artesian Cheese Company, and with us now. Tor, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, Scott, how are you? I have to apologize, but I've had my voice is uh, not that good today. This morning, I had no voice at all, so uh, at least I have something here now. <laughs> no problem, no problem. It's that time of year. So uh, how did you get into cheese? But this is a lot bigger than cheese. I mean, I'm looking at your website. Quote, Canadian award-winning cheeses and gelato made with Guernsey and Holstein milk with A2 uh, protein. Uh, A2 protein rather. Uh, give us a bit of back history in here and, and what you do. So, I mean, I've been in the cheese business since uh, 2009. I just want to quickly also say that actually our factory location is in Stony Creek, and then we have a market location in Paris. Just wanted to let you know that. Um, so, yeah, I've been in the cheese business since about 2009. I used to be uh, a co-owner of uh, Cheese Shop in Lock and Hamilton. Decided that I wanted to get into actually making cheese. Went to Vermont, studied there, and uh, 2015, I, I took over this facility here in Stony Creek. It used to be in a uh, traditional Italian cheesemaker since the 1940s. And uh, yeah, so we're continuing on to tradition. You're making great cheeses. So how did you get into cheese? How did you find this passion? Yeah, it's a second career for me, I have to say. But it's when I when I started the cheese store in Hamilton there, I really discovered my, uh, my passion for it. And then once I started selling cheese, I just realized, you know what, I want to do more than selling it. I want to actually make it. And uh, getting the, the training in it uh, obviously helped a lot. And, and I have... have uh, Great people I've worked with over the years. I have great partners here in the business. Uh, the Fidanza family has been in cheese for for a very long time, well over fifty years. So you know, together we're uh, we're a great team here, and we do a lot of great work. All right, I'm going to ask you a very complicated question, and just give us the simplistic layperson answer. But how do you make cheese? <laughs> well, if you have, do you have an hour? No. <laughs> so basically, you know, you start out with milk. Uh, the quick version: we pasteurize all our milk here. Except for our sheep milk cheese now, we do an unpasteurized version of that. But uh, you pasteurize, uh, then basically you add cultures. You let those cultures, uh, you know, uh, basically settle in the milk for some time, and then you add rennet. And uh, after that, you you cut that, uh, uh, you know, this basically at that point, it's like a solid almost pudding slab. You cut it into very small chunks, and some cheeses we cook. If you want a firm cheese, some cheese we are like our blue. We don't really do much cooking at all, and then we we put it in the, in the molds right away. and yeah, so there's lots of different variations, obviously, going from there, but it all comes down to what kind of cultures you use and uh, what kind of temperatures you're uh, you're cooking at. It's, uh, it's pretty involved. What does it mean to win these types of awards? Uh, Royal Winter Fair, but more importantly, uh, tw- uh, 2023 World Cheese Awards. How, how do you how do you first of all get involved in that, and, and what does that do for for your product? Well, it, it's always been a dream of mine since I got into this, but I, I always wanted to, uh, you know, 
try to I, I remember saying years ago to my wife I want to I want to try and win the world's best cheese and I just sort of entered last year just didn't really think much about it and well, lo and behold last year we ended up actually winning best Canadian cheese overall and five other awards which was amazing and this year again so, you know we have four awards where the uh, the highest award is Ontario cheese maker and then of course the Royal Fair which is such an amazing amazing wonderful uh, fair it's been around for a very long time it's, it's an institution and it's, I'm always looking to do really well there because you know it's 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 our home, our back backyard so to speak, and uh, and I'm always excited when when uh, when we can do uh, do something there, and it's been great. And actually, this has been the best year for us at the Royal Fair, so we're super excited. So, how does this translate into sales? Um, is this something that you can compete with uh, with other stores, or is that even what your objective is? What is your objective with this? Well, I mean, it immediately helps with with our uh, our retail, obviously. You know, like our our stores for sure right off the bat, and then we're also mm-hmm. now we're at Zoe's, we're at Longos, we're at Shortinos, and we're at quite a few select independent retailers as well. So that really helps getting the name out there. People recognize it, and and overall, it's great for the bottom line. Like last year when we uh, we won at, at the World and at the Royal Fair, we immediately saw an uptick in sales here, and and it's, it it means everything for us, especially you know family-run business like this. It's uh, it's great when we get these kind of accolades. And what about exporting? Uh, well, we're not there yet. Right now, we're just servicing Ontario, and uh, yeah. you know we we we're, uh, we got our hands uh, full with that. And then you know, obviously, we're looking for towards the long term. But definitely, you know, as 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 we're growing, I, I would left, definitely like to tackle that. I like to get our cheeses outside of the Canadian market into the into the U.S. and as well into Europe. You know, so I mean, that's something definitely that's that's a long term goal. How do you judge cheese? You know, I've a, a few people have asked me that. It's it's actually a pretty rigorous. Um, uh, uh, criteria they go by. They have sort of like a checklist that they go through, and they they, they you know they judge by appearance, uh, by consistency, uh, flavor, uh, you know, technical aspects. So and, and and that's great about these sort of shows. They they have to basically uh, give you points on each category, and and you only get an award if you if you get the right enough points in each category and totaling up to you know uh, whatever out of a hundred, right? So it's it's definitely. Uh, that's the kind of competitions that we always look to be in because you know we don't, we don't want to be in a competition where if you're the only one in, in, in that category you get a you get a prize. We want to be in the ones where people are actually looking at the technical aspects of everything very very closely, and that those are the those are the ones that really show us that we're doing the right thing here. And what about gelato? Gelato is something we started two years ago now, and and it's it's slowly growing. Yeah, I I, I right now I, I still don't have it in. In wholesale yet, it's just some select restaurants, but gelato is something that, you know, we have it here at our Stony Creek location. We have it at Harris Winty Mills Market. Um, we only use our um, A2 um, protein milk for that as well, and, and it's starting to really, uh, people are starting to notice that we use nothing but natural ingredients. Like, I don't, everything is made from scratch. We don't use any powdered mixes for gelato. It's completely 100% natural, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, we're very proud of that. Tor Kruger with us, owner of Utterway Artesian Cheese Company. You can look them up and uh, making their way on the world cheese stage, and who knows what is next. Tor, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Well, thank you so much for the time, Scott. I really appreciate it, okay? And the Hollywood actor strike is over. I said the Hollywood actor strike is over. What does that mean? Uh, or have you gone on to other things like those wacky little bloopers you see on TikTok and such? <laughs> Let's bring in Bill Brio, TV critic and author, and with us now. Find out more at Brio TV. Uh, Bill, uh, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Doing fine, Scott. 
So what does this mean, Bill? Uh, uh, first of all, let's start with what were uh, what were the gains here? What were they looking for? What did they get? Do we know anything on that front? I don't have all the details. And the executive uh, with SAG and ACTRA, uh, they still have to approve the deal. So the members are just looking at it now. What the holdup last week was they wanted to address uh, AI that they felt that the uh, producers and the and the studios they had some sneaky idea of um, basically grave robbing of taking like uh, actors who had died, like uh, you know whoever Humphrey Bogart, mm. Marilyn Monroe, and 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 bringing them back to life to to promote or be part of films or TV shows. Uh, the uh, union said, "Wait a minute, we got to nail this one down. You're not getting away with that." That would push the settlement another week. And I guess that's something that they did address and clear up. So no more Marilyn Monroe movies, no new Marilyn Monroe movies then. Because that's well, bizarre. You say yeah. that. You could theoretically correct, uh, uh, produce another show, another movie with these people. Yeah. You know, if the Beatles can keep putting out records, uh, you know, then sure. <laughs> you know, anything's possible. I think uh, you probably will see that. It's just going to cost more to do it. And so producers will likely be much more selective. So you said this still has a few stages to go. Is it over? Is it safe to say that? I think it is. Everybody wants and needs this. Uh, you know, the fall, if you've been watching TV, you're seeing a lot of reality shows and shows from Britain. And, uh, you know, where is my new episode of NCIS or Abbott Elementary or anything Grey's Anatomy? They've all been shelved. And with the writer's strike having ended six weeks ago, Writers have been back to work cranking out scripts. So it, it, the ending, the solving of the strike comes at a very interesting time. We're entering you know, a period now where nothing happens in December but Christmas specials. It's just wall-to-wall Hallmark movies coming up. Hmm. So we're not going to see anything coming until January anyway. Will the networks have enough time and momentum to start getting episodes in production of your favorite shows in time to get them on at a fairly normal uh, winter launch in the you know the first second third week of January. I think they will. They'll have scripts. Uh, I'm sure studios have been readying this, thinking, well, this can't last much longer. And I think we're going to see a pretty quick turnaround to get it. Let, look what happened in late night. You know, all those shows mm. came back the minute the writer strike ended. Uh, so things will probably get hopping pretty soon. Have things really changed for the writers or the actors here? Because, again, we're talking about an unknown entity, especially with AI and such. Uh, was there really much solved? Yeah, you know, one of their big grievances with writers and actors is that uh, traditionally uh, people, in the, the creative people in the business, they got paid, uh, you know, these residuals that were very good for, for you know, a generation if you mm -hmm. did a sitcom, if you did Seinfeld or, or Friends, you saw money every year like an oil well. And because uh, with streaming coming along and then Netflix would just buy the entire run of The Office or Friends, the, mm -hmm. the financing structure changed. And that was the radical sea change they needed to address because people who maybe only got enough money to write it the first time their script really relied on that second, third, fourth, fifth check. Yeah. And so they had to restructure things to get more money up front, which I understand is what they did in, indeed do. Uh, th will this affect other aspects of the entertainment industry or even industry itself? Sure. I mean, you know, the Canadian guilds are, are I'm sure watching this very closely. Yeah. They're, 
you know, their agreements are up next year, I believe, and guilds and other places. There's talk of guilds being formed to protect people in, uh, you know, reality shows. There's no guild if you're on a, a contestant on Survivor right now. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm sure um, the, the, the whole broken business model has been addressed here. How well, we're not quite sure yet, but it's it's got to be better than what was happening. And uh, it must have been worth the six months that everybody sat. Does or will it change the way we make things, the, the way we produce things? I think, yeah. I mean, we're the downside for writers and producers is they may have less work. What we're talking about, peak TV has peaked. And the streaming idea that, oh, my goodness, we just have to launch this thing and they will come. Well, bad news. The old network TV model actually made money. And the one that you got now where you have to produce bottomless vats of television to get people to subscribe, that's too expensive. People are losing Disney and Prime Video and, you know, they're all losing money on it. So they're going to be cutting back. They've already said this. They're going to start creating you know, cheaper versions of their streaming services with ads. They're trying to figure out a way to do it. But the one quickest way is make less stuff. And I think we're going to see that happen uh, in the new year. Will that mean better stuff? That's always the question, Scott. Let's hope so. But, uh, you know, TV's always had an endless capacity to make both bad and good stuff. (laughs) I don't know if the odds got any better, uh, so we'll see. But uh, I, I think there's probably some burnout with creators who are just for it's been a marathon for a decade of, you know, ever yeah. since whenever, you know, uh, the, the first Netflix hit. And I think people are maybe in a way catching their breath has been a good thing for everybody. Uh, lots of times when there's disruption like this, whether it's a pandemic, a strike, what have you, people go, they change habits. They go to other sources. What about the fallout? Well, you know, I, I suspect that when Abbott elementary returns, people who love that show can hardly wait or Grey's Anatomy or Mm -hmm. whatever, you know, NCIS. Um, I, uh, you know, part of me thinks a lot of those shows have been on long enough. I'm thinking of NCIS. And maybe this is a good time to turn the page, but we keep seeing shows being rebooted. It's almost the only thing that sells is something that's known and a new version of Frasier or whatever. So Mm. I think when the familiar comes back, the audience will come back to watch it. Uh, It's interesting to see now also the effect on the late night shows because they've had kind of crummy guests. If you've been watching, they haven't had the big names promoting their movies or shows. They couldn't do it according to the guilds. So we're finally going to see Tom Cruise come back to talk about Mission Impossible 8 or 9 or 15 and (laughs) things like that, right? Can kids now wear their uh, Marvel costumes? Is that allowed? (laughs) Yeah, I guess. uh, Parents have to pay the guild dues. No, yeah, I I think that that was a pretty hilarious little side story. I think, yeah, kids can go back wearing costumes again. Will we see a new model emerge out of this? Is something, will it be the same or is uh, it never been the same since that strike post pandemic? You know, as long as you and I have been talking, Scott, which is a long time, right? Uh, mm. TV has been in a current constant state of revolution. So yeah, change is all uh, ever that's happening. So I think it will have to change how it impacts Canadian television uh, is very interesting because so much of our broadcasters rely on American content. Um, so yeah, lots ahead to sort of chew over and hope that people figure out. 
Bill Briel with us, TV critic and author, actors. Uh, strike is now over, and we'll see what happens. Bill, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Christmas, less than 50 days away. Uh, people, uh, of course, are uh, concerned about the economy and inflation and affordability. And a new report from Deloitte says 67% are concerned about uh, such issues. And 33% of them concerned about paying for holiday gifts. Uh, so no surprise that uh, we could see projected spending down by as much as 11% compared with last year. Do we say that every year is, um, you know, or is it in fact different this year just because of where we all are in the economy and such? Let's bring in Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author, retail before, during and after COVID-19. Here now, Bruce, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Scott. So we, you know, it seems we hear this stuff every year. Obviously, things are more complicated now with, a, with in a post-pandemic world and, and lack of affordability. What do you see as we enter the Christmas season, the holiday season this year? Yeah, I think it's going to be a little tougher this year than we think. You're right. We always kind of, you know, the last year we were saying the same thing, and actually the holiday turned out not bad. But I think what's different this year, a couple things. One is um, you can feel that we're really close to a recession right now, and it's starting to show in the numbers. You know, we're really close to a technical recession, which is two quarters of uh, negative GDP, although the GDP negativity is only a little bit, but we're starting to see that. You're also you're starting to see layoffs, too. Like, look at what happened today. Canadian Tire announced layoffs for the first time, I think, in a long time. And um, interest rates are still really high at 5%. There's a lot of people renewing mortgages now at the higher rate. Uh, inflation is is down a lot, but it's still higher than we're used to. Um, and there's wars going on, two wars going on around the world, right? So I think people are just a little nervous this year, and they're going to actually pull back in spending this year. Uh, and another indicator, uh, as you alluded to, uh, Canadian Tire heading into this season when normally things are picking up and, and talking about uh, cutting back on staff. And I've seen figures as high as 30% that there'll be a reduction of those jobs that are available, uh, maybe for uh, students that come home or whatever and want to grab some extra money over the, the holiday break and such. Uh, there's less people, uh, less retailers, I guess, uh, going to hire for this because they see the slowdown. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I think retailers, you know, one of the only things you can control uh, is your payroll if you're a retailer. And uh, it's one of the things you can kind of cut quickly. And that's what retailers tend to do is they tend to, when needed, they need to cut staff. Canadian tires cuts are more corporate, but you're seeing other uh, retailers cut at the store level. And that's, uh, that's definitely a sign of the times. Well, will we see a shortage of staff when we go in in the busy times around the holiday shortage of product? Yeah, I think you'll see lots of product, but you're going to see a little bit of a shortage of staff right now. But I mean, this 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 holiday is going to be a little different. I think you're going to see a lot more price discounts, a lot more promotions, a lot more value, a lot more reward points being offered. You know, every retailer is trying to sweeten the pot to make customers spend. Is that going to happen? Uh, it seems every year this stuff happens earlier and earlier to the point where uh, Boxing Day sales or Black Friday sales or Cyber Monday sales aren't much different. Yeah, no, it's the same thing. I mean, basically, it's become like sort of, you know, starting on Black Friday in a couple of weeks. That's the kickoff. And basically, the sales start and continue from then on. But you know what? Retailers have tried to get out early. I mean, Amazon had their prime a little earlier this year. But consumers are very fickle right now. They're only waiting and striking when they see something really good. They're not going to buy for the sake of it. You know, the last couple of years with the pandemic, we kind of picked how many stores we went to and we kept it tight. 
now consumers are more than happy to shop around, whether it's online or brick and mortar, to find that deal. A good time to buy early, or will we see sales as the season uh, approaches or even ends and, you know, try and unload stuff? Yeah, it's it's kind of a bit of a gamble. I mean, if you if you know there's something you really, really need or really want and you see it on sale, you might want to score it now or soon because, you know what, it might sell out. But if it's something that you know isn't maybe a great price right now, you probably want to wait to closer to Christmas. As retailers try to blow out stock, they'll get more aggressive toward Boxing Week. Do you sell or market differently when the economy or people are feeling this way? I mean, it's hard. Some people, it's hard to feel good about because you know, obviously, they can't do what they what they want to do. Do you approach this differently in the way you market? Yeah, the big difference this year is everyone's marketing on value. So you know, mm. um, everyone's talking about, hey, we know we know things are tight. Here's how we're going to help you get through the holidays by offering this product at this price. Or what some retailers would do, like Canadian Tire, they're going to shower you with points. They're going to shower you with loyalty points if you buy. So, yeah, everyone's sort of turned up the dial a bit on, on discounts or points or anything to try to, you know, drive value for the consumer. Bruce Winder with us, retail analyst and author, Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19, this year's Christmas season. Uh, Canadians, again, talking about cutting back. Bruce, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, you too, Scott. Take care. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We certainly know what's going on in the world and the latest on the Hamas-Israel war. The White House has announced that uh, there will be new four-hour daily pauses uh, in North Gaza, the battle going on there to allow citizens a way out. Uh, Closer to home, uh, two Jewish schools in Montreal uh, shot up and, uh, yeah, Um, and the Concordia protest yesterday, it turned violent, took three hours to gain, for the police and security to gain control, says CTV. Uh, the Prime Minister answers in his angry voice, uh, no place for this in Canada. It's unacceptable. However, uh, I'm not sure exactly what that solves. Uh, a ledger poll, which was out a few weeks ago, uh, showed that many Canadians were even unaware of historical genocides, whether it's the Holocaust or anything else. Uh, and of course, with all of the events that we've seen of late coming to play, uh, one, one, uh, one must uh, wonder if perhaps more education isn't needed. Let's bring in Andrew Enns, Executive Vice President, Central Canada for Leger, and with us now. And Andrew, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing well, uh, Scott. Doing well. It'd be nice if things were, the rest of the world were doing as well, I'd say. Yeah, it'd be nice if we could have some calm, that's for sure. So are you surprised by any of this? First, give us some numbers. And and again, this was conducted back in September. But give us, you know, some perspective of where Canada is. Uh, for sure, Scott. So this was a poll that uh, that that we actually did uh, with a good partner of ours, the Association of Canadian uh, Studies, uh, Jack Jedwab uh, and, and company over there. They do a lot of good work, and we're really pleased to be working with them. We asked a question around, uh, uh, you know, are you familiar with any genocides that have been committed in the world? Just a very straight up question, yes or no uh, kind of uh, response, and. Um, you know, overall in, in the country, it was 73% who said yes, which in a lot of research, 73%, it's a pretty good number. It's, you know, a good, strong majority. But I, I, I think I would have felt that this sort of very open question, just any genocide would have been closer to 100%, quite frankly. 
And um, so at 73, um, you know, means 27% um, just, you know, no. And uh, so, yeah, that that caught me a bit off guard. Um, numbers, uh, you know, higher in Quebec at 78% said that they could recall, uh, you know, that they were familiar with the genocide. Uh, low end down in the prairies at 69, uh, 71 in BC and Ontario. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think you kind of tickled the, uh, one of the answers there in terms of education, but it, I think it's a general thing around how we look at history and, and do you the, think the preoccupation we seem to not have with respect to history. Does this uh, then come back around to education, education, education? We understand Ontario just recently and BC as well making education on the Holocaust uh, mandatory. Um, uh, you know, is this something that with like the World War II, when it comes to something like the Holocaust, it just as time goes by, uh, less and less people remember if we're not educated? Look, I think education is important. And, you know, you referenced a couple of provinces working it into their their high school curriculum. I think um, I think in general, I look at my two kids when they went through high school. I was I was constantly disappointed year after year in high school, the lack of sort of focus just on history in general. Um, I thought there could have been, you know, a lot a lot more on that doesn't have to be a whole entire year of like a boring textbook, but certainly, uh, you know, history is super important, uh, you know, I think to who we are as a country and just generally in the world. <laughs> but I'd also say, Scott, that, you know, and I think specifically around genocide, some of the issues I think around why people have trouble identifying a genocide is that it, it sometimes becomes a political situation, right? Mm, um, yeah. You know, where people like it in, and this is difficult to sort of conversation to get into, but but there's been some recent cases where um, you know a conflict has broken out, and people will use the term genocide to say that this was a deliberate and and it becomes a bit of a um, it's a communication point, and mm. I think that creates some confusion too because you know when I look at some things that were identified as genocides they're not necessarily a genocide as opposed to a war or a conflict. Right. Yeah, and yeah. those aren't the same. And, and there's a real, real meaning to genocide. And sometimes I think that gets lost and that creates confusion. Do you think recent events, what we're seeing Hamas Israel war has drawn more attention to this, the need to find out more, although we are seeing lots of, of disinformation and lots of people just not well, knowing the whole story. I, I, you know, yeah. You're, you're right on both accounts. I mean, I think for sure. And, and uh, you know, part of what I do, uh, you know, Scott, in the research side is, is at Leger is, you know, I do a lot of focus groups and these are just small, small, uh, you know, discussions with with six or seven people recruited to come to a, come down to a place or, or meet online. And um, of late, I've had a couple where, where the Middle East has come up and it's it's amazing how many people will say, I, I actually don't watch too much of it because I honestly, I feel, I don't know what's going on. Like I, yeah. I don't know the history and, and that's a problem. Uh, it's okay. I guess if you, if you decide to step back and, and not, not take a hard stand, but then sometimes maybe people take a real strong stand, but it's not based on a full, full, full understanding and appreciation of the history that's gone on here. And, and so 
yeah, I, I think I think the situation we're seeing here and the fact that the that the conflict seems to be spreading into our country a little bit, um, I think really, really begs the question, you know, how much do people how much do we need to talk to people and, and, and uh, provide really good, honest information? Right. And that's where the disinformation we need to somehow sort through as well. Andrew ends with his executive vice president, Central Canada for Leger. Uh, recent, uh, not as many Canadians as we like are historically aware of genocides, including the Holocaust. Andrew, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Scott. Always enjoy the conversations. Uh, last week, I was in Amsterdam, toured the Anne Frank Museum. Uh, look it up if uh, you need some info. Andrew Enns, Executive Vice President, Central Canada, Leger. A quick break here. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow uh, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonald laurier Institute. Lots to talk to him about. Charles, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. It's good to speak with you. Before we get started, just your thoughts on the latest coming out of the Hamas-Israeli war. Uh, we understand the White House has announced a four-hour pause every day or daily to allow those uh, wanting to flee a way out. What can you tell us? What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I think it's certainly a positive development uh, as a humanitarian measure. It allows people to to try and ad- address the impact of these bombings, and I guess including um you know, trying to get people out of buildings that have been destroyed by Israeli air attacks and giving people an opportunity to to uh, move to safer parts of Gaza. So, you know, and the opportunity to get in humanitarian aid. They, people need water. They need food. Whether the Israelis will allow um, energy in, which could be used by Hamas for for weapons manufacturer is hard to say at this time and then there's also the possibility that we'll see a longer um uh, maybe a three-day uh ceasefire to to allow more comprehensive recovery to be done in in gaza to try and protect those people you know so far over ten thousand uh people 40 percent of them um uh, children and and uh women have have died in Gaza due to the Israeli action. So, you know, obviously this is a, a tragic, tragic situation. Um, how do, and I've asked this question a lot, and, and, and I'm sure it's ignorant, but it's one that uh, is very simplistic. For me, this is less about Israelis versus Palestinians, vice versa, religion versus religion, um, uh, left versus right. It's freedom and democracy versus authoritarianism and terrorism. How do Palestinians separate themselves from Hamas, which is a known terrorist organization? Oh, I think that most Palestinians uh, are not supporters of terrorist action. And, you know, I I don't think that that Palestinians living in Gaza thought that it was a good idea for Hamas to break into Israel and start to brutally murder, disfigure, rape innocent Israeli civilians, young people at a music festival, for example. Um, You know, there is the Palestinian Authority, which uh, is still in control of the West Bank that supports a two-state solution. You know, you hope that there could be some resolution of this crisis between the Palestinians and the Israelis, similar to uh, the the peace that's been brought into Ireland after decades of hmm. violent confrontation between the Protestants and the Catholics. So, 
I, I think that the Israeli idea that they want to uh, eliminate as m many of the terrorists as possible and their demand that the 240 or so hostages that Hamas is holding in in these uh, tunnel-like dungeons under hospitals and schools and so on in the, the Gaza Strip should be uh, released. You know, it, one, one certainly can't argue with, with, with that demand. Um, one hopes for peace in the Middle East, but so far I think there's just so much high emotion and anger. And, and you see it in Canada where, you know, we do have these extreme elements that support the Palestinians and downplay what Hamas did in, in Israel. And then, of course, uh, people who are um, very strongly supportive of the, uh, of the way that the government of Israel is proceeding. And it, it seems it's hard to, to reconcile those two highly emotional, sometimes irrational um, perspectives. How do we help Palestinians rid themselves of Hamas? Oh, I think that, you know, I, I think certainly we we should make it clear to everybody around the world, including inside Canada, that uh, terrorism is just not an acceptable way to achieve their political goals. I mean, one can understand the, the frustration of uh, the Palestinian nationalists, but these people are are just beyond the pale in terms of their use of violence and and attacking civilians and using innocent uh, Palestinians in the Gaza Strip as as human shields to protect their terrorist or, uh, organizations, and ultimately, uh, you know, they are a function of Iran, which is a, a regime dedicated to the destruction of of the Jewish race and and. Uh, wants to become the the dominant form of of islamic faith um throughout the world so you know we we have to deal with hamas we also have to really deal more effectively with iran and up to now it's pretty clear that our attempting to to appease iran by by measures to to try and uh, ease the the um suffering of of the Iranian economy due to the sanctions due to what the Iranian government has been doing has not worked I think I think we, we really are looking at at war here and you know who who can feel happy at that prospect hmm. um, some have said that Hamas um, isn't doing enough to help Palestinians you were talking about Hamas using them as shields why isn't Hamas doing more to help Palestinians well, I think that you know this is really about an ideological struggle where where their ideological idea of you know whatever they say from the river to the sea, in other words, mm. eliminating the entire state of Israel, which I think means you know eliminating the 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 Jewish population there is is based on on ideological crazy norms that don't make any sense whereas i think most palestinians just want to live their lives in in peace and come up with some resolution to to the political differences between themselves and israel you know i i've i i just i just don't think that that people in palestine support terrorism i i it just it just goes against anything that's good and and of course is completely contrary to the norms of their uh, Islam religion.
All right, completely changed gears here, Charles, and the reason we called you, uh, I saw the BlackBerry movie on a plane recently. It made me think of Huawei, and then lo and behold, there's articles today that uh, we learned that Huawei is still filing patent, uh, patents that are tied to Canadian universities. Where is Huawei now? Well, you know, I mean, exactly. We thought that we'd stop this and that the Chinese would not be able to use Canadian researchers you know, donate towards their labs and research and then obtain the patents, many of which have dual dual use capability. In other words, they're not just about making our telephones work better, but have military implications, which could be then used to in, in a conflict between China and the West to to fight against us. So, you know, the government made a statement that said national security is the responsibility of all partners federal, provincial universities and researchers alike does seem to suggest that our government is uh, trying to say, oh, it's not really us not taking effective action to put an end to this, but, you know, we're all responsible here. I mean, that is ridiculous. National security is a federal government responsibility, and it's incumbent on the federal government to initiate legislation to protect our national security, and it's unrealistic to expect researchers to be able to assess whether a grant from Huawei for a certain kind of research that makes their research possible in the face of government cutbacks to to support academic enterprise in Canada is uh, a threat to national security or not. You know, this is it's really all about the government not being responsive enough to the concerns of our security agencies over the threat of um, the Chinese Communist Party's agenda here in Canada. And this is a story which just seems to repeat and repeat, whether it's global news, whether it's the Globe and Mail, you're hearing constantly that security agencies and the military are sending um reports to the government expecting to see them respond through legislation and they seem to just end up in the back of a drawer somewhere and nothing ever happens and this seems to be yet another of those charles burton with us senior fellow center for advancing canada's interests abroad at the mcdonald laurier institute charles as always thanks for the time be well have a good afternoon The White House has announced that there will be daily four-hour pauses uh, in the conflict in northern Gaza in order to allow people out. Reggie Giacchini is with us, Washington correspondent for Global News, and here now. Reggie, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon. Why is this happening now, Reggie? Uh, Obviously, you're feeling, uh, we're seeing rather uh, people uh, voicing opinions on this, both sides of this discussion. Why is this coming about now? Well, I mean, look, there's been pressure not only um, throughout the region, but throughout um, the kind of broader globe for something to be done to protect the civilians that are in Gaza and unaffiliated with Hamas. And there has been growing pressure even domestically in the United States on the U.S. government to do more here. You know, the U.S. is kind of walking a delicate line. It's supporting Israel while at the same time saying that, you know, international war laws need to be followed. Uh, You know, and and here we are with the White House announcing these humanitarian pauses, Uh, you know, whether or not it's because, you know, Israel is giving in to potential pressure from the United States or or because, you know, Israel feels that that, you know, this is going to be of a potential benefit to them. You know, it's that's that's, you know, that's an unanswerable question. But at the end of the day, the White House out today saying that whatever is going on is is based on decisions that are being made in Israel because the U.S. is trying to make it clear it is not the one pulling the strings here, that this is Israel's conflict and Israel's decisions to be making. 
Uh, many are saying, uh, including our prime minister, that uh, there, there needs to be a pause for humani- humanitarian pause, but also the release of the hostages. But one doesn't necessarily mean the other, does it? No, it doesn't. Uh, and, and look, uh, the White House today came the president came out and said that these pauses are essential and these pauses should be longer. Um, Joe Biden had said, you know, when he was at Joint Base Andrews today, um, that he, he he would like to see a three day pause to try and get, um, you know, something negotiated with hostage release moving forward. Uh, look, the, the CIA director is in Qatar uh, trying to negotiate or broker some kind of uh, parameter for a release, although, you know, the plan for that is pretty elusive at this point. Um, you know, a pause doesn't mean that negotiations for, for hostages are going to come out. Um, you know, the White House is pushing, saying, look, I wish that that the prime minister of Israel would be doing things better and faster. Uh, obviously, time is is kind of a hot commodity at this point. But a pause for humanitarian relief does, you know, it does wonders for the thousands of civilians caught up. Whether or not that's going to release any hostages, you know, it, it's it's likely not going to, considering that, you know, we've heard from the Israeli PM that that there will be no full stoppage of their military operations until Hamas opts to release all of the hostages without condition. Will these pauses actually happen? We hear of these halts or whatever, and and only some are recognized. Are there? Is this solid? Is this is this set in stone? Well, I mean, look, in, in any conflict, in any war, uh, you know, whether it's this one or we've seen it with Ukraine and Russia, when there's a, a pause that's put in place, it lasts a certain amount of time. And then sometimes the pause is breached or it simply goes away. Israel says that this four hour pause is going to happen daily. It was six hours today. It's happened for a couple of days in a row. We have to see if the Israeli forces are going to stand true to the word that they not only gave to the United States, but they're giving to um, to the people in in Gaza at this point. Um, you know, it's important, but it's worth pointing out here, Scott, that while the U.S. and the world are calling for these pauses, the United Nations today, uh, the Human Rights Agency, uh, was out saying these pauses are unnecessary because the displacement of people from north to south needs to stop. The United Nations is very flat in its words, saying a ceasefire needs to happen. We cannot have people moving around because you know, so-called safe zones oftentimes find themselves to be unsafe. Um, you know, so we've got multiple people calling for pauses. We have the UN calling for a full ceasefire and to stop moving people around. But ultimately, again, as the White House has said, this is Israel's conflict, and they are going to be the ones driving and making the decisions. Is this or could this help Hamas? Um, are, are they following the same program? Well, I mean, look, the, the reason that we're not seeing a ceasefire uh, is because, you know, according to the White House National Security Council, a, a ceasefire will legitimize what Hamas did on October 7th because it, it would it would make it OK for them to have done that and then consequences to be wrapped up. You know, whether or not Hamas, um, you know, allows for these ceasefires to move through, we have to wait and see if they decide to, to open any fire onto Israeli territory during these kind of four hours here. There are, are general concerns here as to whether or not when aid makes its way through the Rafah gates, if mm. Hamas is actually going to you know interfere with that and take it for themselves rather than allowing for the civilians to have it. That is concern of the White House. That is concern uh, for the Israeli government uh, as well. But but for what we see today is that these these you know humanitarian pauses are happening. People are able to move out of the way. You know, what happens in the days to come? You know, that's still an open question. Reggie Giacchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News, uh, U.S. Uh, Biden administration and Israeli government talking about ongoing conversations uh, to have a at least four hour humanitarian pause every day. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. 
When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, the HSR strike has begun. How long will it go? First one in about 25 years. Uh, and, well, we'll leave it at that. Let's bring in Larry Deany, former mayor, city of Hamilton. Get his perspective. Larry, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am very well, Scott, and happy that I have a car. <laughs> I, I can see that. I would. I can totally understand that, Larry. What are your thoughts? I mean, uh, I'm not yeah. sure, you know, I mean, being a post-pandemic mayor isn't the easiest thing at best. Uh, what are your thoughts of where we are right now? Well, so let, let me put it this way. Um, you, you are right that the last, um, the last uh, strike uh, by HSR was before amalgamation when we had a regional government and the region was in charge of, of transit, uh, public transit. And, um, and that uh, was just before a Christmas, not too dissimilar for this, but we were closer to Christmas then than we are now. And the strategy by the union uh, was, well, we're going to disrupt the, uh, the uh, Christmas holidays and um, and the city will cave. It didn't work out too well for them then. Uh, and I don't know whether their strategy now that the Great Cup is coming to town and uh, um, and we're into the Christmas uh, sort of uh, pre-Christmas shopping season, um, they, they might have the same tendency in feeling that perhaps this is the best time to, to disrupt and, and try to get the concessions they want. I don't know how it's going to work out. However, having said that, it is disruptive. In in this city, people who use public transit are those who choose not to have a car, cannot afford to have a car, and students. So so it's a more vulnerable population. Um, that's a bit of a of, of an over exaggeration, perhaps, but but largely true. So you're disrupting people who really need the public transit, and so consequently, I think a deal needs to be struck. I was told by a very reliable source that what we've been reading in the papers about what the union wants and what the city is offering are not entirely accurate and and they are very close to a deal. So I'm hopeful that saner heads will prevail and this will be the shortest lived strike in the history of the HSR. I'm hoping that, uh, of course, um, uh, I, I don't know, but it would be good for the city to get this resolved. What about whenever this does ends, what the fallout afterwards? We've seen, especially in a post-pandemic world, that uh, that, that uh, patterns change, uh, habits change. As you mentioned, though, this is obviously those who need it that are riding that, that will that will hope to get the service back. But how does this change the HSR moving forward? Does it, uh, especially coming out of a pandemic, or is it, you know, just another labor dispute? It gets resolved and we move on. Well, I think the, uh, the you know, we'll soon forget. You know, people tend to forget and they'll get on with their lives and those who need the bus will be happy to have it back and and the city will adjust. The, the impact, though, will be uh, because there are going to be raises. And although, I mean, one of the figures I read that the union wants, which I'm told is not accurate, but 21% or so, um, that that is, you know, an untenable number, I would think, if I were negotiating on the other side. And this is why the city has not agreed at this point, although I'm told that the number isn't accurate. Uh, but whatever it is, it's going to be higher than it is today. So the impact will be to our taxes. And guess who's going to pay that? It's going to be mm-hmm. the, the, all of us, right? And so 
it it may get uh, labor peace in terms of uh, a needed service, public transit, uh, but it'll hit us in the wallet. And, you know, that's that's just the life of living in, in the city, I guess. Uh, how does City Hall balance that with the frag- uh, fragility right now of the taxpayer? I mean, obviously, people are very concerned about uh, affordability and such. Are there certain things they're willing to pay for, others not? Where does this fall? Well, the mayor put out a statement, really, and uh, she tried to cover, you know, all of her bases, um, saying that they want to be fair to the uh, to the transit workers, but they need to be fair to the taxpayers. Uh, and uh, and of course, uh, she also mentioned in her statement that we do have a great cup coming and she tried to be celebratory about that. But I think the fact that it, it was put in a statement around the labor disruption uh, sort of uh, hinted that this was not the best time um, um, to, you know, we want to we want to present a city that's working and not a city that's in strife. Um, and so she tried to cover those bases. So it's a question of trying to hit that sweet spot, you know, where um, nobody's happy, which means you've probably made the right choice. And hopefully they'll land with a number that's more in line with some of the other contracts that have already been settled, as opposed to something that's exorbitant uh, and therefore would set a precedent for other labor groups. And I'm not sure how many others there are, but the city has many different uh, union groups that, that, uh, that um, you know negotiate with the city and they look for patterns and precedents and so the city needs to keep an eye not only on this contract but the implications of this contract to others as well you talked about this hsr strike and the effect on the gray cup obviously the city wanting to put its best foot forward that being said what happens to tent encampments during the gray cup uh, uh good question although I, i've got to say that i'm seeing fewer of them, especially around the downtown area, uh, than, than a few months ago. So they're, they're trying to do something to, to, to assist there, or maybe it's just that it's too cold to be intense and people have found other ways of, uh, of, of dealing with the colder weather. I don't know. Uh, but you're right. It's, it's not a good look uh, for the city, um, uh, and, uh, and hopefully something will be done both to help those individuals who are so desperate that they don't have a roof over their heads, uh, but also in terms of the image of the city. We're going to have a lot of people. I hope we're going to have a lot of people uh, coming to the city, um, especially since we're not in it. It's going to be city. Uh, it's going to be people from, um, my guess is Toronto and Winnipeg. Um, and, and so you want to look your best. You don't want to have, you know, unsightliness um, all over the place. And so the city needs to do something about that as well to make sure that we uh, we look uh, pretty as well as exciting. Larry Deany with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton, uh, weighing in on the HSR strike and, of course, the uh, upcoming Grey Cup festivities. Larry, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You as well. Sales and the use of electric vehicles continue to strengthen. Some experts are saying the Canada does not have the charging system that is needed. And I I don't know. I think this is a gradual thing. I I don't think this is something that you need overnight because not everybody's changing overnight, despite obviously increasing in numbers and still a relatively shortage of supply. But uh, are we at least keeping up? Or at the end of the day, everybody that has an EV has a charging station in their garage anyway. 
how many are taking them on long distance trips on a daily basis? Let's bring in Lorraine Sommerfeld, columnist, driving.ca and the Hamilton Spectator. And with us now, Lorraine, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm good. How are you, Scott? So far, so good, Lorraine. Are we heading for some sort of train wreck here, or will this gradually improve as obviously more and more EVs hit the road? Because anybody I know that has one has uh, has the gas pump right in their in their garage. Well, I think you use the right word when you say gradual. Um, there's a lot of people that are crapping all over EVs all the time saying it's not going to happen. We're already globally hitting the tipping point. There's some magic number, like 15% or something that as soon as you hit that, it will be accepted and we're getting there. But you're right. Most people at this point have a, it's like leaving your house every day with a full tank of fuel. And what is going to have to happen is the infrastructure is not there. They're right. Like it's not perfect, but I yeah. think we're asking the wrong question. It's what do you need your car to do for you? And we're imagining taking road trips every day you know, for hundreds of kilometers. And that's not what people are doing. So for what we're actually using them for, commuting like 40 kilometers, I think, is the average return commute, something like that, for people that aren't just staying in their homes. So gradual is the right word. It will increase as more is put into infrastructure. It would help if governments would mandate that in new builds that they're roughed in. And your favorite premier and not, not mine and one of those bills about Now Lorraine ago. don't That's don't make this political don't make not. this political Lorraine we're ta- <laughs> Lorraine don't make it political we're talking about cars it's our great common denominator we need, here We need political will you can't say yeah. it's not political while we're putting billions of dollars you know yeah. into the pockets to build battery factories it's all political sure. everything's political yeah. but new bills have to have the stuff roughed in we have to accept that we're moving forward this way mm-hmm. and that will help a lot if it's roughed in before you get there, you know, like, uh, you know, the built-in vacuums and things like I was that. Just, so I was just about to there. say, I was just about to say, like the vacuum in your, ho- in your house. So, yeah. again, yeah. Give us, uh, bring us yeah. up to date. How long does the average charge last? And am I correct in saying, like, you know, you unplug it in the, in the morning when you go to work, uh, you'll, be, you'll be able to get there and back in, you know, I'm, I'm presuming at least four hours, uh, and that should cover your charge. Is that accurate? Yeah, average chart, average um, mileage now is about 500 kilometers, um, depending on what you buy and your brand and everything else. And the weather yeah. still has an impact on it. But again, we always think in terms of margins and extremes. And we actually don't, most people aren't charging their car up every night anyway. They don't have to. They're not using that, they, yeah. you know, that much. So I think we're usually asking the wrong questions. It's like people buy great big, huge minivans and SUVs because they imagine go to the cottage for one week a year with everybody. And then they drive around with empty <laughs> for 360 other days. So I think people just need to just be calm. And the people that already have them are the best spokespeople for electric vehicles. They're the ones who will tell you what's actually going on. So talk to your neighbors and colleagues say, how do you use it? How does it work for you? You know, what's involved? And a lot of them are thrilled to be paying so much less maintenance and, you know, saving a, ton of money on fuel, obviously. So talk to people that are actually doing it. Lived experience is a real thing when it comes to EVs. And anyone I know isn't when they go to the mall, oh, I got to find the space with a charger in it. I mean, it just, like I said, they, they're they covered for that. But again, I guess, you know, that's not everybody. That's, but, but still the majority using them on that basis. What about rebates now? What's out there, whether it's the charger, the car, the vehicle itself, is there anything? 
Yeah, there's federal rebates and there's provinces that do far better than your favorite province, Ontario, uh, BC and Quebec. And that's who gets most of the stock as well because they have the rebates in place. So before you buy, go and look. Your salespeople will know what's going on or they should at least. Um, but we're getting closer. The band is getting closer. I think Volvo will be the first one this year or early next year um, for closing the gap between an ICE and an EV. So the gap is narrowing. But again, it's there's lists to fill and we don't have the product. And so everyone is overpaying. Every car you're buying today, you're overpaying for. We're getting gouged like crazy. But that's not just it's on EVs, that's on everything. Which, you know, which is why you don't rebate things that um, that are selling, but I digress. Anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. So uh, what about uh, maintenance? Again, I know a couple of people that have them and, and obviously, you know, saying great things about them. What do we know about the durability length? We're hearing issues about uh, eight years and then a new battery, very expensive, uh, going into landfills. Where are we with that discussion? Batteries and again, and by the way, I'm not I'm not trying to poo-poo on EVs in any way. I mean, you know, I think it's a great idea. Hey, I'm to keep not going to buy one next. I'm going hybrid yeah. next. So yeah. uh, I'll put yeah. my money where my mouth is. But the thing is that they come the battery is warranted for eight years on average, like at least eight years. We're they're lasting far longer than that. The aftermarket has to catch up with how they're recycling these batteries. It has to be a closed loop. We have to be able to recapture those very expensive components. And a lot of batteries can go from a car and they can power um, small cottages and things like that after their life is done with a car. So we're going to see a lot of creativity, a lot of innovation coming into this. Again, the aftermarket is not quite caught up. So the horror stories about, you know, it cost me $25,000 for a new battery, stuff like that. Those stories are real. They're still around. However, you know what media is like with headlines is how you yeah. make a living. <laughs> yes. And, and, but who would have thunk, you know, you get the old EV battery and bingo, you got the Christmas lights powered. I never thought of that. You know, yeah. what the heck? Um, you know, I just came back from Europe where you ride down the hill on a train and it generates electricity and puts it back up onto the grid. So um, we hear more and more about hybrids. I know Toyota is gone that way and avoided the EV. They think it's a combination of both. Where do you think that discussion going? I have said for years that I believe hybrids will be the bridge to EVs. I believe yeah. it will be fully EV at some point. I think most governments are a little optimistic and they're reaching. And the more they do that, the more the old timers like me dig in their heels and go, wait a minute. And you're going to have a lot of cold, dead hands having their ice you know, vehicles taken from them. But if you have a well-maintained vehicle that works for your needs, the best thing you can do is drive it less. You don't have to run out and buy an EV or a new vehicle. Just maintain the one you have. Um, drive less. That's the best thing I can tell people if they can. But again, maintain it. And then when the time comes, look at all the options available and see which one fits your lifestyle and your life. You don't want to be stranded if you're a high miler. Now's not the time to be lining up at a mall trying to get a charger you know, getting into fights with yeah. people. There's some U.S. stories that are great. Oh, but, no. You know. <laughs> Walmart, never mind. All right. Uh, Lorraine <laughs> Summerfelt with us, columnist with driving.ca and the Hamilton Spectator. Uh, EVs, the discussion continues uh, the way of the future. Lorraine, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. See you later, Scott. 
Joining us now, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, how are you today? I hope you're fine. I, I couldn't be better. Scott, how are you? I think you're fibbing. Anyway, HSR uh, on strike. Do you think this will affect the Grey Cup festivities in any way if this continues through that? I do. I do. And I'll tell you why. Um, well, there's a bunch of reasons, but one of the big ones is uh, you'll recall that they made a big deal several months ago about the fact that there will be hotels in Niagara Falls that are tied in with the Grey Cup Festival. This is part of the mm. the thing because we don't have a ton of hotels here. And you know what? Look, if people are coming from across Canada, one of the things they want to see is Niagara Falls if they've never been to this area before. So it, was a, it wasn't a bad idea, but they are not going to have a car. So they're going to get the shuttle bus from the Niagara Falls, wherever that is, that brings them to Hamilton. And then what? Now we have, we have Uber and we have taxis and things like that, but yes, it will have an effect on the Grey Cup. And you also have people who want to come down to the Grey Cup festival downtown and have some drinks. Well, they, if they are wise and we hope they are, they don't want to drive. So again, you know, the, the people from Uber are probably wringing their hands in glee at this, but I do think it's going to have an impact. So what now? What are the alternatives? You just hoof it? You provide shuttles? Uh, as you said, Uber and taxis? Oh, I think you just, as a, I think as a city, you just give the ATU drivers the 22% they're looking for and get it done. Yes, my tongue is in my cheek, Scott. It's, it's, <laughs> I, no, I, it, I was going to wait till the dust settled there. Yeah, no, no. I, I, look, I, I, yes, you do what you have to do to get down there, I guess, or this is the part where you... you are disappointed if it's the case, or people are going to just say, well, you know what? It, I don't want to pay an Uber to go all the way downtown because it's going to be expensive. If I'm coming from Flamborough or I'm coming from Dundas or wherever, Stony Creek, and I don't want to drive because I'm going to be drinking if we go to the Grey Cup parties. And so I just won't come. That's the, mm. that's the unfortunate part of what could happen. Uh, Larry D said, and I don't want to put uh, words in his mouth, Larry Deani, that uh, things are probably a lot closer than what they sound. There's just a lot of um, uh, a lot of um, politicking going on at this point. Well, we're going to talk about it on my show uh, right off the top because I, I'm not sure I agree with him. He may be right. Look, I'm not going to I'm not going to call out Larry Deani. He knows his way around City Hall better than most, uh, certainly better than me, but. The reason I'm not as confident as he is, is because I think there are 11 other unions that still have contract negotiations going on. Yeah. Yeah. And do you, you are, if you're the city and you're already, and I keep coming this number, if you're staring at a 14.2% tax increase, I think you've got to be pretty stingy with the raises that you're giving out. And I'm not saying giving out none. But I don't also think that you can turn this into Christmas in November and everybody like, you know, everybody gets everything they want because that all goes to the bottom line. That's all tax dollars that get added. And this is a very public situation because the buses are a very public thing. And if you acquiesce and you give them what they want or close to what they want, I think you're setting yourself up for a world of hurt with all those other unions. Uh, obviously lots of people coming to the city want to put the best foot forward. HSR, one of the issues, what happens to the tent encampments between now and Grey Cup? Uh, wow. I hadn't even thought of that. Um, probably nothing different than what was before. What was there something that was supposed to be happening that would make it different? I don't know. You mean, are you I, I talking about just as a cleanup of the city? Yep. I don't think, I don't think that council would want that as the impetus 
I mean, do you, you think it's already? Do you think it's already happening? Uh, I. I don't know. See, Scott, I don't know if you remember this, but about three or four years before the Beijing Olympics, and I'm not talking about the most recent ones, I'm talking about the summer ones before, there were stories of people like clearing out street people from where they were going to be developing and where the tourists were going to be. And it was a big scandal at the time because look, they're just people living on the street and it was elitist and all the rest. I don't think that our council and probably with good reason, wants to see, be seen as clearing people out, not because of danger or not because of the potential of fights or fires or drugs. I don't think they would ever want to be seen as clearing them out for aesthetic reasons. That would be a bad, bad, bad look. And if you did this the week of the Grey Cup, that will be the reason that's, I, it doesn't matter what you say the reasons are, it will be seen as you want to make our city look cleaner and to be looking cleaner, you're going to get rid of the riffraff as it were. That's not a, that's not a compassionate look. What, no matter what you think of tent cities, if it's simply for aesthetics, that's not a good reason. Uh, do you think this will be resolved before the Grey Cup? No. I mean, I, again, I, I think, was it yesterday that you and I were talking about this or uh, I was talking with someone, I think that if there's a chance that this thing gets settled in the first two or three or four days. And if it doesn't, I think it's going to be a while. I, I don't, I don't anticipate this thing lasting a week and a half or two weeks. I think it's either really short or it becomes dug in. But you know, again, uh, that we're not in the negotiations. I'm just going by the difference in the salary requests, the salary demands and what the city is offering. They're not close. It's almost double what they're asking for from what the city is offering. I just don't see it as being close right now. Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you as always, Scott. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one, an email from Jonathan and says, Canada has always been a multicultural country filled with different views and cultures. What is different now? Perhaps Remembrance Day will refocus and unite Canadians. Keep right except to pass. 